0: One other reason we, uh, we do testimonies as part of membership is because in almost everyone we hear, there is a story of suffering. And we need to hear that because we live in the West and we uh, are in danger of having bought a lie that, I don't know how it got into the church, but uh, there's a lie that says that if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, your life should be easy and good and there should never be any problems. Uh, And if your roots don't go very deep, then when you have hardship in your life, uh, you will walk away from that faith because it's not done the trick. It's not done what it's supposed to do. And we hear testimony after testimony of people seeing the faithfulness of God in the midst of suffering. And that is what the Bible promises. So I just wanted to throw that out there, especially in light of, as Jeff prayed, you know, there are times when we may be called to suffer um and our prayer ought to be that we would suffer well when we are uh, we are back into this series on the metaphors of the church and I, I I'm going to um, I'm going to admit something to you that uh, pastors this is this is something that pastors deal with but they probably don't articulate very openly uh, so for all those ministers out there I'm it's a little bit like a magician sharing their trick Um, I'm, I'm a minister sharing something that ministers have that most people don't know, and it's sometimes we pick a text to preach on, and having picked it and decided upon it, we start looking at it, and then we regret it. Uh, there are passages in the Bible that are very comforting. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Oh, that's nice. Who, who doesn't wanna preach on that, right? Uh, there are passages that are very encouraging. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Who doesn't want to preach on that? There are passages that can be scary. Uh, Fear the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. You don't always want to preach on that, but sometimes you have to preach on that. Uh, And there are passages that are just plain perplexing. Uh, There's a place where Jesus says, um, where there is a carcass, the vultures will gather. And you're like, what does... What's up with that? And if you're kind of a Bible nerd, which most pastors are on some level, you don't mind preaching that because it gives you the opportunity to wrestle with and dig deep into a difficult passage. And then there are passages that are just plain convicting. And I would argue that this passage is one of those passages. It's just extremely convicting. Uh, We've looked at metaphors that are encouraging like the metaphor of the church as an embassy. We've looked at uh, passages where uh, the metaphor is very comforting, like the metaphor of the church as a flock. Well, this is a metaphor that, at least for me, has been rather convicting as I have studied it over the last uh, few days. And it's this metaphor of the church as family. And to be faithful to what John does in this passage, I'm going to have to say some hard things because this is John. John, hmm, you read through the letters of John and what you discover is, is John has a penchant for just sort of painting things very starkly in black and white. There's not always a ton of nuance with the Apostle John. He just likes to hit you between the eyes with tough things. And so when I pick a passage like this, and I'm going to preach on it, then I'm kind of stuck because he's hit me between the eyes with tough things. And if I'm going to be faithful to the text, I'm going to have to hit you between the eyes with tough things. And who likes to be hit? Nobody, right? But you know, in Hebrews chapter 4... Uh, it says this, the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. So we shouldn't be surprised that the Bible will do this to us. But we shouldn't be afraid for the Bible to do this either because God is, is the great physician. And whenever he cuts, He cuts with the precision of a surgeon and he always makes a cut with a purpose. He's not just slashing us willy-nilly. He's cutting us with a a purpose to heal us and make us more and more like his Savior Jesus. So we're going to look at this passage together with all those uh, um, introductory remarks and we're going to see... Uh, three things, and I'll tell you what those things are as we go along. The first thing is maybe the most uncomfortable and hardest thing as we uh, unpack things in this passage, and that is this. John says that everybody is part of a spiritual family, but there's only two families that everybody is a part of, one or the other. Look at what he says in verse 10. No one who is born of God will continue in sin because they see because God's seeds remaining, bleh, I'm not reading verse 10, I'm reading verse 9, that's why it didn't make sense to me, there we go, uh, here we are, this is how we know the children of, that the, the chi- who the chi- I'm trying to be all dramatic, and then I blow it, okay, let's try again, this is how we know who the children of God are, and who the children of the devil are, Anyone who does not do what is right in God's, is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother and sister. John divides the entire human race into two spiritual families, and there is absolutely no in-between. There is no wiggle room here. John says that if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, then you are a child of God. And he gets this, of course, because uh, this is what Jesus had taught and this is what he wrote in John chapter one when he said, whoever believes in Jesus, whoever receives him and believes in his name has the right to be called a child of God. This is the biblical doctrine of what's called adoption. The doctrine of adoption says that, that when you put your trust in Jesus Christ, God, God inv- he, he doesn't just invite you into a relationship with you, he takes you into his family. And that family, of course, is the church. So you have siblings when when you become a member of Christ's church, you now have spiritual brothers and sisters. This is why the apostles in their letters are constantly writing to the churches and saying, brothers and sisters this, brothers and sisters that, brothers and sisters, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. That's the church. But if you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, if you have not put your trust in him, what John is saying is, is that you are a child of the devil. And if you are here this morning and you're downstairs or in this room or you're going to watch online later, if you are not a Christian and you are offended by this statement that you are a child of the devil, I completely get it. This is the part that made me really, really uncomfortable. I gotta start, I gotta tell people this. We wanna be a church that is very open to people who are not Christians. We wanna be a church that is warm and inviting to people who are not Christians. We wanna be a place where skeptics and seekers feel like they have the freedom to ask hard questions and to doubt and to to wrestle with big ideas and, and you're gonna stand in front of all of them and call them the children of the devil? not a great sales pitch for your church van and brink and if you're thinking to yourself well how dare you call me that you don't even know me what do you think i am you some kind of serial killer or a uh, drug dealer or gangster or something like that you don't know me and you're right i don't but god does And the Bible does. And actually, John is saying something extremely profound when he says that there are people who are the children of God and there are people who are the children of the devil. We need to understand what he means. What does he mean? Well, it's it's interesting. In verse 11, or sorry, verse 12, he all of a sudden brings up this comparison, right? He brings up Cain. Don't be like Cain who belonged to the evil one, that's the devil. So Cain is a child of the devil. That's what John is saying. He belonged to the evil one and he murdered his brother. Cain and Abel, John says, is an illustration of these two spiritual families. You go back to Genesis four, Cain and Abel were actual brothers. They weren't just spiritual brothers, they were actual blood brothers. And they knew who God was, their parents, Adam and Eve had taught them who God was and explained to them who God was. And at one point we read in Genesis 4 that they made sacrifices to God. Abel made a sacrifice from his flocks because he was a shepherd and Cain made a sacrifice from his his harvest because he was a farmer. And it says in verses 4 and 5 of Genesis 4 this. Listen to this. It says, The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering he did not look with favor. Okay, so they bring their sacrifices, God is happy with one uh, one sacrifice and he's unhappy with the other sacrifice. Now, the text, Genesis 4, does not tell us why God is happy with Abel's and not happy with Cain's. He doesn't explain to us what the problem was. There have been lots of debates over what the problem with Cain's uh, sacrifice was, but there's not a ton of agreement between scholars on it. And frankly, it doesn't actually matter because that's not the point. Because the point is, Cain's response, because it says Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. So Cain's response to the fact that God did not accept his sacrifice was to get mad. And so God comes to Cain, and God says, in verse 6, he says, why are you angry, Cain? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted, but... If you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. It desires to have you, but you must overcome it. So, so here's what God says. God says, listen, Cain, you screwed up. That's okay. It's not the end of the world. If you do what is right, if you do things the way I want them to be done, then your sacrifice will be accepted. But if you don't, you've got to understand that, that you're on the brink of being a being consumed by sin sin's gonna get you and see this is what john is doing he's making cain an illustration of someone who stubbornly refuses to submit to god that's the problem with cain he does not want to obey god he does not want to listen to god And that is what makes Cain a child of the devil, because who's the first created being that didn't want to submit to God and didn't want to obey God? The devil, right? And you go to the New Testament, and there's a place in John chapter 8 where Jesus is arguing with uh, some Jews. Where am I here? I got all these thingies. Uh, Here we go. In John chapter 8, Jesus is arguing with a bunch of Jews. And in verse 42, he says to them, of John chapter 8, he says, if God were your father, you would love me, for I have come here from God. And then in verse 44, he says, but you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. Now, he's talking to religious people. These are Jews. These are people who are part of God's Covenant family that he 's been in relationship for, for centuries and centuries and centuries, and Jesus is saying to them you 're not children of god you 're children of the devil. why? because you won 't accept me that 's why there 's only two options the Bible says: you either love Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who came into this world to die for you, who came into this world to go to a cross and bear the punishment for your sin and rebellion in your place. Either you, you submit to him and you love him and you cherish him and you delight in him and you say, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Either you do or you don't. It's that simple. That's what John is saying. You either decide God is my judge or I am my own judge. You either decide, I'm going to live for God, or I'm going to live for me. You either decide that God is capable of running my life, or you decide that you are capable of running your life. There's only those two options, and those two options put you in one spiritual family or the other spiritual family. Now, the question is, what family are you a part of? Are you in the live-for-yourself family or are you in the live-for-Jesus family? How do you know? And that's point number two. How How do you know? Well, you know by who you love. In verses 14 and 15, John says, we gotta get better lighting in here or I gotta get younger or something. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. What John is saying is that the evidence of the family that you are a part of is whether or not you love your brothers and sisters who are in the family. And remember, the family is the spiritual family of God made up of people who confess Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, who say, I want to live for Him. He is the one who controls my life. He is in charge. Now, understand, John is not saying the way you become a child of God is by loving your brothers and sisters. No, that would be works righteousness. What he's saying is the evidence that you are a child of God is that you love your brothers and sisters. It's because that you you are a child of God that you love your brothers and sisters, and that's a huge difference. Now, let's think about this, what what John is saying. Think with me here. There's all kinds of things about family that makes those relationships unique, but there's a couple of things that make them very unique among the relationships that we have in this world, and they're these, first of all, You don't choose your family, do you? You have all kinds of relationships. You have friendships, you have colleagues, you have uh, people that you share on, you know, uh, that you go to work with, that you go to school with, that you uh, hang out with, that you do uh, service with maybe in the community, et cetera. And those relationships are chosen very often. Friendships, for example, you know, you have a common interest, right? We both like chess or you have a shared perspective on things. You know, we both think the government is too involved in our lives, or you have a mutual experience. You went to the same school, let's say. You, you have the same degree in your education, or you went through a similar experience in life, maybe a similar illness, let's say, or, or whatever, right? So those relationships are chosen and they're based upon these kinds of things. And even if you didn't choose a relationship, so for example, let's say you're on a sports team and uh, the coach chose who's all on the sports team, you're, not on that sp- or you're on that sports team, you didn't choose the players on that sports team, but you're a part of it, even though you didn't necessarily choose it, you st- it's still a tenuous relationship. And this is the other thing that's unique about family. Family you can't choose and family you can't get rid of. You can't just disown and walk away from. If you have a fight with a friend, you can say, I'm done with this relationship, right? If you don't get along with your neighbors or you find a new job, you can move and you're no longer in relationship with your neighbors. If you're on a sports team and you don't like the team, you can quit, you can find another team. Family you're stuck with, right? because the bond that you have with family is deeper than common interests and shared values and stuff like that. The bond you have, or location and proximity, the bond you have is a bond in blood. The blood of Jesus is what bonds people in relationships in the church, just like the blood bond you have with your your blood siblings is what binds you together. And whether you like them or not, is not relevant to the question of whether or not you have to love them, right? I mean, it's fascinating. Like, it's always great to see families uh, like the Sluts, where it seems like they all get along really well, at least on the surface. But most families, you got to admit, you you see you see how I had mostly boys too. Okay. And you see how, when they're younger, how they will beat the tar out of each other if they get the chance. And it's shocking because they have, and the reason is, is well, because of sin and selfishness, et cetera, but it's also because they, they have so conflicting personalities or strong wills, for example, or competitive natures or, or whatever, that, that they will actually lose it on one another. But at the end of that, they don't say, well, I'm done with you because we had a fight. No, they're stuck with each other. they got to sit at the table together and have supper at some point. And what Jesus is saying, sorry, what John is saying is how you love those people not your friends, not the people that you hang out with, not the people that you have fun with, but those people, the people that give you a really difficult time, who who rub you the wrong way, how you love those people, that's the evidence that you're a child of God. See, the church is supposed to be a place where people get along with people in a way that they would never get along with in any, in, in any other, other place. A church is supposed to be a place where you see like liberals and conservatives. You see rich people and middle class and poor people. You see people of different education backgrounds, people of different ethnicities, people of different sort of sophistication, the cool and the uncool. They're all together in the same place and they're all caring for one another and looking out for one another. Did you know when Christianity first started first started, right? Like, like when, when the first Christians were sharing the faith and the church was just being born, read the book of Acts, it was largely Jews that were becoming followers of Jesus Christ. And so the Romans, they looked at the early church and they're like, ah, it's some like weird Jewish sect. Right? It's, 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 It's quasi-Jewish, but a little bit different Jewish. So so Judaism is evolving or morphing or whatever. But then what they started to notice was they're like, wait a minute, there's Greeks in there, and there's slaves in there, and there's free people in there, and there's noble people in there, and there's really poor people in there. We can't just call this some Jewish sect anymore. It's got to have a different name. And they came up with the name Christian. Look, let's, let's just be real, okay? It's easy to love people, that are like you. They think like you, they look like you, they behave like you, and so you like them. And it's easy to love people like that. What's difficult? What's hard? Loving people who you don't like. And you know why? Because Point number three is, Jesus, or John, defines for us what love actually looks like. You guys, anybody here know the band Foreigner? I want to know what love is. I want you to show me. I should be on the worship team, I know. (laughs) Be careful what you ask for, Foreigner. You want to know what love is? John tells us what love is. And again, he provides no wiggle room. He says right here in verse 16, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. That's love. The kind of love that John is saying a Christian exhibits towards people that they don't necessarily like, but they are in family with, is self-sacrificial love like Jesus. Now, understand something. Jesus didn't come to die for us as an example, but his death for us is an example. That's an important difference. He didn't come to die as an example. Imagine if you were standing on a pier and looking out over the ocean, and somebody runs up to you and says, let me show you how much I love for you, and they jump off the pier and they drown. Would you say, oh, that person loved me so much? Or would you look at them and say, I think they have a screw loose. That was stupid and maybe crazy. See, the kind of sacrifice that Jesus made for us is a unique sacrifice. If you were uh, standing on the pier and you fell off, and now you're drowning underneath the waves and somebody jumps off the pier and at the cost of their lives, somehow they push you to safety in order for, for you to live, that would be evidence of how they loved you, right? Because you had a need and they came and they sacrificially fulfilled that need. Well, you had a need, you were separated from God who created you in love, who knows you more better than you know yourself and you were separated from him and you were facing his judgment and Jesus came and said, let me show you how much we love you, how much the Godhead loves you. I will die in your place so that you can survive, so that you can be adopted as a child of God, so that I can call you, My dear brother and my dear sister, let me show you. And it is that love that is the template for the love that we are supposed to show to one another. You're not expected to die for the sins of any of your church brothers and sisters. But are you actually expected to literally lay down your life? for them well you're in Canada <laughs> when will that ever happen you ask yourself well maybe I was listening to Francis Chan and he told me he, he told me yeah personally me and Francis were talking as buds and um, no, I was listening to a story that he told of a man in his church years ago who had come to faith in Jesus Christ. He had been raised a non-Christian, doing anything about God. He became a Christian, follower of Jesus Christ. He starts reading his Bible. He comes to this part of the Bible, and he's like, whoa, that's heavy. What, is, what do I do with that? And then he hears in an announcement on Sunday that there's a guy in their church who needs rides to his dialysis because he's got failing kidneys. And so he's driving this guy uh, to his dialysis. And at one point, he was just struck and he looked at the guy and he's like, like, so how long are you going to be on this? The guy goes, I don't know. I need a kidney transplant. And I got to do this as long as I have one. And he says, well, you want mine? Guy's like, what? Well, I have two. You need one? I can give you one. And the guy was like, well, why would you do that? And this guy said, well, I I was reading 1 John 3 the other day and, well, I'm sort of stuck. So maybe, maybe in places around the world, that actually is a thing, you know, laying down your life for a brother and sister. When you live in church, you go to places around the world where where there are pastors holding services that, uh, that are are considered against the law and if anybody's caught there they could be killed and you're on your way to that church and you get arrested and you get tortured and somebody says you tell us where that church is or we're going to cut off your head and you say cut off my head because I'm not giving up my brothers and sisters it's really happening right you're laying down your life Now, we live in the West, and maybe most of us are not going to be in a a situation like that, and I sure hope that I will never be in a situation like that. But that doesn't mean we can get away with it, right? Because you can read verse 16, where where John says, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters, and here in the West we can say yes and amen to that, all the while secretly knowing, ah, it's probably not going to happen, right? I'm not going to have to do that. It's, it's a little bit like what Linus said when he was confronted about what he thought of people. Let's have a look at what Linus said. Right, underneath it all, that's how we think. I love mankind, I would lay down my life for my fellow man or fellow woman, but you know, really actually people I don't like. Individuals I don't like. And it's interesting that Paul, or sorry, John, says in verse 16, um, we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. He uses this sort of general expression for brothers and sisters in the church. And then in verse 17, what does he say? He says, if anyone has a material possession and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? In other words, He gets specific. He gets specific. And it's interesting how he talks about material needs. In that culture, of course, there were many people with material needs and others who had material goods, and so they would literally share things with their brothers and sisters. He's not calling for communism or anything like that, but he is saying that those with means, when you see people without means, you share those things, and we we wanna maintain that principle in Grace Valley Church as well, but of course, Probably for us right now, one of the biggest things that we could share, a material thing that we could share, a possession that we could share, that we would have to give up because that's what sacrifice means. It means having something and then letting go of that something. So if you have $100,000 and you've got a friend who needs $10,000, you give them $10,000, you no longer have that. Of course, that's a possibility, and I encourage all of you who have those kinds of means to look for ways to be generous to those who don't. But I would challenge you in this, each and every single one of us could and should be wrestling with our time. Time is a possession that we have as well and if there's something that I've noticed in the modern church and I see it in my own heart so don't feel like I'm just bashing on you, I'm, I'm going after me too. One of the things we really don't like to give up is our time. You got a children's ministry that you want to start. People go, eh, I kind of like kids, but, oh, two hours every other week. Oh. You got a life group that you want to start, and you say, mm, what if I end up with people that I don't really like? Two hours every other week with people I don't really like. Doesn't sound like fun. Not nearly as good as knowing that the eighth season of Homeland is now on Netflix. Right, like, let's just... just Let's just admit, right? One of the things that is most precious to us right now is our time. Ah, say family sounds like a really good ministry. I want to be part of it. Now I feel like I kind of have to because Hilda goes to my church. But what if I end up a family friend with someone needy and they're always on the phone and they always want to talk to me and they're always lonely and it takes so much time? This, friends, this is how we know that we are children of God. When we love one another this way, self-sacrificially, it is utterly counterintuitive, right? It is so counterintuitive because our culture is totally about the self. The self. I read, you will not believe this, I I read an article in the New York Times this week where a woman... Talked about her divorce as an act of radical self-love. Her husband and her kids got in the way of her career aspirations, and as a radical act of radical self-love, she had to cut the string. And then I watched it. I read it online, and I looked at the comments and the number of comments that said, "Yes, that's authentic living." It just it boggled my mind. So. This is how we love one another. But remember, the way you're going to do this is not by feeling guilty after everything I just said and going, oh, okay, Hildy, sign me up. Oh, okay, Chris, I'll come to the boys club. No, 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 what you gotta do is you gotta go back to verse 16 and you've got to let verse 16 sink into your heart. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. You need to see Jesus dying on the cross for your sin, for your selfishness, for your hard-heartedness. You need to see Jesus dying there and saying, these people don't want anything to do with me, but one day they will know, and so I do it for them right now. And I will never ask them to give even a smidgen for me of what I am now giving for them. And when that melts our hearts, we'll we'll start to love each other. I always like to say Grace Valley is an aspirational church. We suck at almost everything. But we, we seek, we seek by the power of the Spirit to fulfill everything that God calls us to. We don't shy away from the hard things like loving our family the way Christ loves us. Pray with me, please. Father, what love is this? As we look at the cross of Jesus Christ, we stand in awe of what he has done for us and he's made us part of your family. There's a whole angle of this that we didn't even talk about, how how beautifully glorious it is to be part of something bigger than ourselves, living in a world where people are so lonely, and they want community. We have one that is forged by the blood of our Savior. We are united to each other as, as brothers and sisters. May we celebrate that, and thank you for that, and Live out of that. We heard from the sloots how it, it transformed. It really transformed Matt. F- the church family being part of it and, and immersing himself in it. May we, may we all seek after that. Hard things you say to us. You, you're saying hard things to my heart, Lord. I like my me time. I'm a me time person. Make, make me a we time person, Father. Make all of us we time people. For your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so...